0: That could be my favorite sermon bumper of all time. Love it. As we uh, jump into, this is the first week of a three-week series. Birds do it, bees do it. And uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, this sermon uh, would probably be considered PG. So if you have young kids, depending on how aware they are, you might want to make your way with them to uh, the kids' ministry. There's lots going on there for them. Uh, It's a great place to be as a kid. Uh, This message is uh, different in uh, content, in the way it'll be heard and received. Uh, It's not like if I was doing a talk on space travel and walking on the moon. If I gave a talk on space travel and walking on the moon, assuming it was a good talk, you'd sit there very intrigued and open and interested because none of us have walked on the moon or done space travel, as far as I know. So there would be no prior experience against which to match the talk. Uh, Talking about biblical-based sexuality And our maleness and femaleness, unfortunately, or fortunately, is something we all have experience with. All of us are one or the other. All of us have sexual experience uh, in one way or another. And uh, the difficulty is most adults uh, not only know about sexuality and God's design, most adults know what it is to to fail at least at one time or another in that area as well, in, in some sort of sin. And so as I preach this, and I've done it twice now, I'm not surprised. I was taken by surprise a little last night because this message really is just kind of laying a foundation. Just kind of getting out there, all the perspective from a biblical worldview uh, of sexuality. I don't profess to be infallible. I'm not the ultimate theologian. So if you want to take issue with it, that's fine. Um, But don't do so from a, well, I think or I feel. This is far too significant to go by what you think or feel. Make sure that your approach is likewise biblically grounded and based and that you're kind of butting scripture against scripture. What I don't want to do is, and and today's message is is assumptions that I'm going to use for the next three weeks of biblical sexuality. Uh, I don't want to preach a sermon on sexuality and make it feel like, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. right? Because that doesn't go very far. And I think it's much more effective when we understand God's design. And we're going to see what a divine genius God is. And we'll just jump right into the message. If they have the CLC app, you can follow along with us. The first thought is that God always was, always is, always will be. Would you read that out loud with me with a certain degree of conviction? God always was, always is, always will be. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's eternal. And uh, we see that uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the Bible, the very first verse of the first chapter of the Bible starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This book is not an apologetic on the existence of God, doesn't try to prove the existence of God. Chapter 1, verse 1 assumes, in the beginning, God. He always was. He always is. Always will be. And uh, when we look at a series on biblical sexuality, um, my motivation for that is uh, sort of twofold. One is that Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, says all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the person of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, teaching, I love to learn. Don't you love to learn? Get that aha moment. Wow, all right. Uh, it's also adequate for correction and reproof, which means we don't always do it right. And uh, that we may be perfect and complete, that when it comes to the sexual side of our identity and our life, we may be living in the way God designed us as a male or a female. It also corrects us to say, nope, that's not what I, what I set this up for, uh, repent and get back in line. And so where else to go? But I consider the Bible to kind of be the owner's manual. It's written by the one who made us. And kind of like if you own a Chevy, you're going to get a Chevy owner's manual. You're not going to get a Ford owner's manual. You want to know who made it, who made it, and then what do they say? How do you manage this and maximize this? Likewise, there's nothing in here that isn't good for us as a human being. The second motive I have for preaching this series is a personal one. It's James chapter 3, verse 1. Where James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. When I am judged at the judgment seat of Christ, for the life that I've lived, whether good or bad in the body, there is going to be a higher standard than what you will go through if you're not a teacher. And I'm going to be held accountable for what I shared with you, how I taught it to you. Was I a good steward in studying and preparing for it? Did I make sure we had a healthy diet of scripture? And so uh, I feel convicted about, and I've done this series, a series like this, these ty- types of truths, about sexuality uh, repeatedly throughout my tenure. Uh, in fact, I remember when I felt a sense of conviction about two areas. Uh, the first one that I felt convicted I had to preach about was when the Holy Spirit really began to deal with my heart This is an area that is one of the greatest threats to a person's eternal life. Why do you pull your punches? Why do you shy away from it? And that was in the area of stewardship, teaching about giving. Jesus made it very clear. You cannot serve God and money. That's his words, God and wealth. And in the most materialistic and wealthy, prosperous nation in the history of nations, One of the greatest threats to your long-term spiritual well-being and biblical obedience is all the stuff and what goes with it. When I realized that, I changed how I addressed stewardship and giving. I mean, used to be, I preached about giving the way most pastor peers I know preach about giving. Because once you start, and especially if you talk about giving God the tithe, the first 10% of what we earn belongs to God, and offerings beyond that, it's all biblical. But when you go there, what happens is when you start preaching about giving, here's what the room does, whether whether they do it or not. Real uncomfortable and defensive. Trust me, when you're preaching, and that's what you read. It is not fun. So what I would do until I felt convicted about it, when I would preach about giving, I'd have like four points in a message. And I'd have number two, one, number two, number three. I'd go ahead and preach about giving. And just when people do this, I'd jump back and get to next number four, and boom, move on. I realized, no, you need, we need an antidote to materialism. That would have been a good amen point, all right, to just fake me out there, all right? <laughs> we need an antidote to materialism. Because it's everywhere. What does our culture tell you? All you need, you know how much is enough? Just a little bit more. All you need is what you don't have yet. And just push, 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 grind, grind, grind. Instead of Jesus saying it's better to give than to receive. And so I've changed it. And now, to be honest, I love preaching about giving and stewardship. Number one, it's financially healthy for you. It takes a load of stress off. And number two, I've told you, when you get to heaven, if you weren't tithing and giving offerings beyond that before preaching on stewardship, and I help convince you to it, you're going to look me up in heaven, and you're going to hug me and high-five me and say, I got rewarded for my stewardship on earth. Thank you for preaching it. So I'll catch you later on that one, all right? (laughs) The second area I felt convicted of was sexuality. Because we're going to see next weekend that our culture is so diametrically opposed to biblical sexual morality, it's causing us horrendous pain, grief, regret, shame, dysfunction. And we're in a sex-saturated society. And so I feel convicted that I'm going to stand before God someday, and he's going to hold me accountable. Did you show them what I had in mind when it came to sex. Did you make it clear to them? Because it's part of, the, it's part of incredible genius. So uh, let's jump right into the second point that says, uh, we only know a few pieces of the puzzle of divine genius. And last weekend, we talked about that. And I'll refer to that again. When, it, when you look at all the truth in the universe, I mean, extending way out past the Aurora Borealis, Okay, When you look at all the physical truth, all the metaphysical truth, all the psychiatric, psychological, emotional, mental, I mean, all the laws of nature and all those sorts of things and beyond, Certainly, we we agreed last week, we don't don't understand 90% of it. We don't understand half of it, not even 30%. We gave ourselves benefit of the doubt, and we said, okay, well, what if we understand 10% of all the realities of this eternal universe of which we've only got like seven or eight decades, maybe, on the planet? And 10% is giving us loads of benefit of the doubt. But let's just say we understand one-tenth of all the questions out there. That would be the equivalent of this This is 30 pieces of a 300-piece puzzle. Like it? You can't agree or disagree with that. You can't critique it. You don't even know what it is. We only understand 10% of it. And the universe and how God made things, we understand less than that because this is really a picture of this. Turtle, turtle. you You can't get that from this. And so it's futile for us to critique God to read this from our understanding and then shake our fist to him and say, "Ah, I think I'm going to do this. I know God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in over 30 years. I know the Bible says, but I'm going to do this. Doesn't make sense. Here's how Paul was in awe of God's divine genius in Romans chapter 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Who can tell God what to do? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him? God doesn't owe anybody anything. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I don't know about you, but one of my favorite sayings, when I'm just in awe of creation, you know, we were out west a few weeks ago. I told you told you, showed you pictures of that. Man, you look out at Bryce Canyon, the Grand Canyon, it's just wow, wow good job, God. Joyce and I had a breakfast date yesterday, and we, we drove the long way home just to see leaves that are kind of turning color late in the year. And it's just like, good job, God, the oranges and the reds. And just it's it's, it's whoa, mind-blowing. When I think about sexuality and I think about male and female and testosterone and estrogen and genitals, I'm like, good job, God. That would have been a good amen point. <laughs> you, know, you feel it. You just don't want to say it. Right? So let's dive a little deeper. Again, I'm laying a framework for you so you understand God's design and his intent as much as, much as we can. We are created body, soul, and spirit persons. As God is three-part, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're kind of a parallel, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, When it comes to spirit beings, in John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he tells him, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. If you've not been born again, if you haven't asked Christ to forgive you your sins and to be your Lord and Savior, you cannot see heaven. No matter how good you believe you are. After the service, stop by the VIP room. I need to pray that prayer. I need to accept Christ. They'll be happy to lead you in that prayer. We have people about every week that stop by and want to accept Christ. But we're spirit beings. We don't fully comprehend it. Nicodemus was a, a, a well-educated spiritual leader, and he still struggled with, with understanding that. But, and I can't fully explain it to you, but I know I'm a spirit being. The next is that we are not only spirit, we're body, soul, and spirit. So our soul refers to commonly understood to be our mind, our will, and our emotions. And the Bible says in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures beside still waters. And he says in verse 3, he restores my soul and guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my mind. He gives me increasing mental health, biblical mental health. He restores my emotions. He gives me emotional health on an increasing basis. And when he restores my mental health and my emotional health, my will, he gives me lifestyle health, and I make healthy, God-honoring choices. When you accept Christ, your spirit is instantly redeemed. And I am, I'm redeemed. When I accept Christ, then I enter the journey of soul restoration. And Paul talks about renewing your mind. It transforms us. So I learn how to think biblically compatible ways. I learn how to feel. I don't be, I'm not ruled by emotions. I learn how to, how to have healthy emotions and then make healthy choices out of that. So that restoration process starts when you accept Christ and it goes all the way until you are done living on the planet where Christ comes back. And then the third area, spirit, soul, body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this. And he's talking about a body using an analogy of something temporary, um, like a tent. We know that the earthly tent, which is our house, our body, is torn down, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice the shift from a tent to a house to a building. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this mortal must put on immortality. Before I get to heaven, I've got to put on the immortal body. Now, there's two levels of this as far as groaning in our flesh and our body. Uh, and so to illustrate those, uh, the one level of groaning in our body, I remember I literally, not thinking about this message, um, but it's probably more thinking about having turned 65. Uh, I made a pact with myself that I was never going to make a noise when I did that. <laughs> All the old people are laughing. Or this. I am not doing it. In fact, when I explained this, a guy after service said, I noticed that a few weeks ago. You sat down and stood up and you never did, because what you tend to do is... Uh, Or you go, who says groan here? We do. (laughs) Now, I understand that that groaning. I mean, who knew, all right, that once you hit 50, you can hurt yourself and wake up in the morning because you slept wrong. (laughs) What's that about? If you're younger, don't have to laugh. It'll hit you. So there is a groaning. You know, the older I get, the more birthdays I have, I call it the birthday tax. The more you have, the more you pay. (laughs) You know what? The older I get, if I live to be 94, as old as my grandpa was, wow, it's going to be an upgrade when I go from an earthly body to a heavenly one. And so there is that groaning, and the more that you feel the limitations of that aging body and disease and whatever takes its toll, there is this, oh, man, I can't wait. But there's another dimension of groaning, longing to be clothed. There is a, oh, I can't wait until Christ comes back and we're in heaven. And, and then there is that not wanting to be unclothed. What's that about? I suggest to you that spirits want to be clothed, are created to be clothed in a body. Side note, where's that at? Well, think of when Jesus encountered the demoniac at the graveyard and he comes to him and he speaks to the demon in this person, identifies himself as legion because we're many, many demons. And when Jesus is going to cast the demon out, what do the demons plead? Don't send us to the abyss. Cast us into something, somebody. What did Jesus do? He cast the demons into the bodies of what? Pigs, a herd of pigs. And you see Satan's intent. What does he do? What do they do to those pigs? They self-destruct. They run down a hill and drown themselves in the sea. But those demonic spirits wanted to be clothed in some kind of body, anything. So our spirit longs to be clothed in a body, Paul says. And when you die and breathe your last breath here and your body is buried in the ground, your spirit is with the Lord, Paul says. And someday Christ is going to return, the rapture of the church, and the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught together with them to meet them in the air and so we'll always be with the Lord. Somewhere from here to there, a huge change takes place. Among other things, I'm not going to get creeped out by soaring through space. That dead body that may have been done a long time is going to be reconstituted and glorified and it'll be an eternal body and then my spirit and soul will inhabit that glorified eternal body forever. How cool is that? So when you became a Christian, your spirit was renewed Boom, your soul is in the process of being restored and then your body finally dies, but at the resurrection, your body gets resurrected as a glorified body and you are once again reconstituted and reunited, body, soul, and spirit forever. Good job, God. (laughs) Humans are greater than animals and our sexuality is, is part of God's image. Again, another foundational point. You've got to understand this. Uh, In Genesis 127, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Your Count of three, say whatever gender you are. One, two, three. That is somehow part of the image of God. When he created mankind, the Bible says God formed man out of the dust of the earth, breathed in him the breath of life. He became a living being. And and when he created man and woman, on day six of creation, he said, it is very good. Your sexuality, we don't fully understand is part of the image of God. It's how He created you to be. Your estrogen, your testosterone, your accompanying plumbing is all somehow a reflection of the image of God. On top of that, uh, we are in a place of responsibility and authority over animals. Makes it very clear here: over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, uh, every living thing moves on the earth. In Corinthians. Uh, it says that there is not, there is one flesh of man, there's one flesh of beasts, one flesh of birds, one flesh of fish, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We did not just start with, with some primordial ooze and then evolve into all that stuff because evolution tells you, no, 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 no. You're just one animal iteration further down the evolutionary path. If we are simply glorified animals, morality does not apply. But see, we are. We're we're in a favored position. And and the Bible says that, you know, a righteous man has, uh, you know, care for his beast. So it's not that we treat creation poorly. But we're in a unique position. And when God created us, he did say, it is very good. And so point number five, heed the warning and understand why. And I don't want to contradict myself. Understand why to the degree that we can. All right, let's, look at, let's look at a warning that we're going to delve into more next week. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This flies in the face of cultural thinking and the popularly accepted cultural lie. It, and it's really common in the argument about abortion where the, the deception is, my body, my choice. Eh, not really. As a Christian, I've been bought with a price, the ultimate price. Christ died on a cross for me. And so guess what? Uh, Jesus said that we should deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. I now belong to him. This, all six foot three, two hundred plus pounds. I can tell you the exact number. um, (laughs) Belongs to him, and I am to be a steward of it. It matters what I do with it to him. In the sexual side of my life, it matters what I do with it to him. I believe in what I feed it, and do I rest it well enough, and get it exercised, and all that kind of stuff. But this is not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. And when he says flee immorality, if you go back to the original language, that word immorality is a Greek word, porneia. Sound familiar? It's the word we get pornography from, but it's not just uh, erotic visual images. It is, is a general word in the original language for sexual immorality. Flee it. Why? Because when you commit sexual immorality, you're not just sinning out there. You're sinning against yourself. Talk more about that next week. So, there are basically two choices for biblically sanctioned sexuality. One is sexually pure marriage, the other is sexually pure singleness. Let's unpack those. When it comes to sexually pure marriage, and, and if you take issue with this, please, I remind you again, don't say, well, you might say that, but I think or I feel. Because with all due respect, in the context of eternity and the fact that you don't have all these pieces, it really doesn't matter what you think or feel. You need some kind of a proof text to go back to it. Because the results can be tragic for you otherwise. So from a biblical perspective, in uh, Matthew chapter 19, they were talking to Jesus about divorce. And they were trying to navigate, you know, how flexible marriage can be. And Jesus lands on the permanence of marriage. And he answered them and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There he goes again. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And marriage, sexually pure marriage, is relational, spiritual, and physical. Okay, first of all, it's relational. Because I had a big conversation not long ago with what's the real purpose of marriage? Why did God establish marriage? I believe there was a relational purpose, there was a spiritual purpose, and a physical one. The relational purpose we see in the creation account, it says that the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. He created Adam first. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And so he made Eve, and there was male and female, man and woman, and the relational dimension was there. And everybody lived happily ever after. If you read Scripture, you know they had their share of struggles. And I have often often said that whoever wrote uh, the wedding vows uh, was probably married. It at least reflects a very accurate perspective because it says for richer for poorer, better for worse, sickness, health, and in health till death do us part. Because every marriage has not just better, richer health, it has poorer, worse, and sickness. Every married couple said amen. amen. And the, till death do us part, I just paraphrase that to say you either get it right or you die trying. That's marriage. So there's a relational context to marriage, purpose. Marriage is spiritual, And here we don't fully understand, you know, Joyce and I are separate individuals, but there's a spiritual oneness to us where he says the two shall become one flesh. There is a bond and a connection. And Paul elaborates on that. We'll talk about more next week. But there is a a mystical spiritual union uh, achieved through intercourse between a husband and wife that's not possible otherwise. And then there is the physical dimension uh, to marriage. And uh, it's fun to read uh, a love letter between King Solomon and his bride-to-be. And they exchanged this back and forth. And fortunate for us, uh, they made it public. And we can read it now thousands of years later, 3,000 years later. So uh, if you have your Bible, you can just read on the screen. Uh, We're going to read from Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. This is him talking to her. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel's like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly's like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. I assume he has an agricultural background there. <laughs> your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of, of, of ivory. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of beth Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. It was a very nice tower, let me just say. <laughs> and some of you are like, what, 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 what book of the Bible was that? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good place to have devotions. And it wasn't just him, OK? I mean, you read, there's a back and forth with him and her. If you go through the eight chapters of that book, either one of them comments on each other's cheeks, neck, eyes, hair, teeth, lips, mouth. Temples, nose, hands, legs, abdomen, feet, hips, navel, belly. I mean, he he even says, man, my heart is racing right now. He's getting excited just thinking about how hot she is. (laughs) And there is no denying that genitals are complementary parts. They're a perfect fit. There is a purpose behind them. God made us that way. And by the way, The biblical design for marriage is, if you choose to be and find yourself in marriage, is that a couple will abstain from sex until they're married. So if two virgins marry each other and then they keep that part of their vow, you keep yourself only unto them as long as you both shall live, and they stay faithful to each other until the day they die, you know that is the one and only 100% way of sure, safe sex? But when you follow that, There is no STDs. Impossible. Now, what does it tell you when there are millions of new cases of STDs every year in our country alone? We're obviously not following that design that God had for us, but that is God's design. So sexually pure marriage we keep ourselves pure until we're married till we say I do and then we keep ourselves faithful unto each other through richer for poorer sickness and health better for worse until death do we part and God grows us in that and he shows us things in that and we see that through our marriage he does things in us that we wouldn't have maybe learned or become otherwise and then we die and we honor him in that that's his design for sexually pure marriage well, not everybody gets married. It's not even God's will for everybody to get married, whether you want to or not. There is also sexually pure singleness. In fact, Paul tries to argue in favor of, if you're single, staying single, for God's sake. He does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. He says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, because he was single, writing this. However, each man, each person has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am, unmarried. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says, if you have a choice, if you're single, consider staying that way. He goes on further in that chapter, and uh, in verse 28, he says, if you get married, you will have trouble in this life. Every courageous spouse said, amen. Amen. It's just a challenge. I remember one of the admins of the first position of ministry I was in. She said, "The one question I have for God is if He wanted us to be married, why'd He make us so different? Because it, way different." But Paul says not only that, but in, in later verses in that chapter, uh, he says, "You know, when you're married, your interests are divided. But if you stay single, you can have undistracted devotion to the Lord." There's a lot of energy spent on trying to navigate the differences between male and female. I cited this once before, but I remember it was three years ago, and I put it in my phone to mark it down. Joyce and I were riding along. She said, she said very honestly, we are so different. She said, it took me 38 years to know you don't do it on purpose. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. But if, so God's will is either sexually pure marriage or a sexually pure single person, living for Christ with a focus that's not available otherwise. And certainly we can't suggest that, well, if you're not married, you can't live a perfectly fulfilled life. I mean, Jesus did. And understand that our, our sex drive, as I think Freud called it, our libido, all right, is a hormonally driven source of energy for life in general. I right, heard one doctor explain, you know, testosterone, that is, that is a chemical that doesn't just drive you to sexual activity. It's the drive that gets the man up in the morning to go to work. I mean, there's a, there's a driving passion behind that. Estrogen has its own driving factor for women. It's an energy source for life in general. And here's the, It serves to drive a husband and wife inseparably together. So think about this. They tell us, I don't know, men think about sex about once, what, a month? <laughs> that was a joke. Once every, I don't know, 10 seconds, whatever it is. Imagine if every time you had a sexual thought, sexual temptation, you immediately thought about your wife. I got to fulfill that with her. Do you know how driven you'd be to her? All day long. Every time, ladies, you had a romantic inclination or, or an erotic one, whatever, a sexual desire or a romantic desire, want to be closed, want to be understood, want to be held, if you immediately just filled in the blanks with your husband and, and both of you would not stop until that romantic longing, that sexual desire, that erotic passion got fulfilled in your spouse, do you know how tight you'd be? And there are so many distractions out there to go, Oh, feel that, but maybe that way. Maybe go that way with it. But he gave us our sex drive to keep us together in marriage till death do us part. Come better, come worse, come sickness, come health, come richer or poorer because I am driven to that woman. I can't get enough of that man. That, that's why he gave us our sex drive, male and female, created he them. An inseparable unity. Or if you're single... Then you take that same passion, that same intensity, and redirect it into healthy, non-erotic passions. Psychologists call it sublimation. where you take that same passion, that same intensity, that same purpose. OK, then how can I, and Paul says, then direct it for God's sake. And when you do that, it can be a driving force in a healthy, productive, fulfilling, single life. And don't you dare raise, roll your eyes or, oh, well, yeah, fulfilling, single life. Because we cannot come close to suggesting That the person who lived the greatest life on the planet, who died a virgin at 33 years of age for your sins and mine, that Jesus lived anything less than a fulfilled life. It's possible to do, male or female, created He them. I don't know about you, but I hear that design. I hear how the one who understands everything, I hear how he created us, body, soul, and spirit beings, kind of like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When I realize that, wow, we're in a position of prominence in creation, and he has good reason to say do and don't do that. When I realize that he either called me to sexually pure marriage or sexually pure singlehood, and I look at all the possibilities, how I can honor him, reflect him, I'm like, good job, God. That's what his design is. Three of you like that idea. (laughs) But here's what becomes evident to us. You know, the Bible says all is sin and fall short of the glory of God. Most, if not just about all, adults know some degree of sexual sin. Whether it was yours, someone else's. even a lustful thought, or an immoral behavior, or an addiction. And if not you, then in your immediate family, however many, your parents and siblings, there may very well be pain and dysfunction and sin there. Your extended family, added, add some more people to it, and then circle of friends beyond that, none of us are immune from whether it was inflicted on us, whether it's something we did, or whether we see a loved one struggling in these areas of pain and bondage. And the, the unanimity of that, how unanimous it now is, preaching about this subject in a crowd like this is far different than it was when I did it 30 years ago. Because the floodgates of sexual immorality have been so released on our culture It's become such an agenda to push us away from what God said. And over time, anything in life, go away from what God said, we'll pay the price and bear the pain and go, now I understand why he said don't, why he said live this way. Next weekend, we're going to drill in to the design that isn't followed and why, because our culture pushes us anywhere but to biblical morality as a single adult or as a ma- married person. And so we'll look at things like sexual abuse. We'll look at premarital sex, same-sex attraction. We'll talk about pornography. We'll talk about transgender confusion. We'll talk about adultery in whatever context. And I know that I will be... I wish I would be preaching to a whole room that go, Got no idea about that. But stats tell us otherwise. I don't know any adult in life that gets a pass on sexual temptation and Satan says, I'm not even going to bother her at all. I won't even toss the thought his way. And many among us have dealt, been dealt the pain, the devastation, whether it's to you personally in your marriage. Uh, it may or may not be something anybody else knows. You may have struggles. And God doesn't just say, tough luck with that. No. We sing about Amazing Grace. We sang a song that he meets us where we are, and he cares about who we are. And so we're going to do a deeper dive in that next week. But I, I felt that it was necessary this week just to say, okay, here was God's incredible idea. We often don't measure up or haven't lived it. But when you haven't measured up or lived it there is still a response from God and the third week is going to be okay and now let's move forward in a good way we're going to close though by just inviting you to have your own sort of reflection and personal prayer time and uh, in times like this when you look at your life and where it is and you look at God's word and where it is uh, a great first response is to do as this song says and that's to turn your eyes on Jesus Like to take a moment to reflect and pray. And I'm going to ask our section leaders, uh, rather than to stay where you are, they're available for prayer while we bow our heads if the section leaders are here, if you just come and stand down front, in case anybody wants to just come and pray about something that's impacted them, where they're struggling or need encouragement, we'll do that. But would the rest of us just bow our heads for a moment. And you've heard God's design, best I can lay it out for you. What are you thinking and what are you feeling? What reactions are you having? Certainly you're with me just amazed at divine genius in our sexuality. But if there's regret or pain or hurt or frustration, whatever the case might be, Before I lead us, take a moment and just tell God about it. Maybe guilt or shame. Tell Him about where you're at in this area of life and your need for Him. And then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your amazing grace. Heavenly Father, when we read the words of Scripture and, and put the pieces together, we realize your divine genius at creating us in your image, male and female. We'll never fully understand and comprehend that this side of heaven, but the little bits and pieces that we can understand, we're just in awe of you and how you've made us the same time, we have an adversary. Satan tries to steal, kill, and destroy, the Bible says. He wants to destroy that image of God in us. He wants to make our maleness and femaleness a source of confusion, pain, frustration, regret, shame, whatever the case might be. But I pray that you would just open the floodgates of love and grace and understanding and compassion and passion and be glorified in us and in this place. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and lives to to live it out as you restore us day by day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free just to linger. I've asked Zach just to play for a while. If you want to have a few words of prayer or reflection, the section are down here to pray with you if you have a need or a burden for you or someone in your life. God bless you.